Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at Right Think Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, good evening, Sharon Pierce. How are you doing, Jeremy Stanley? I'm doing good. You know, I uh, as you picked up on earlier, you know, I'm dragging a little bit today. I uh, got a massage earlier, and you know how you get that feeling when you get a massage afterwards. You're a little laid back. You got a little bit of achiness. You almost feel like you're getting a cold or something. Mm-hmm. That's me because they break something loose or something. Yeah, huh? I mean, it felt great. You know, I, usually I don't sleep when I get a massage, but man, I fell asleep. The dude goes, "You were snoring." It's like, wow, <laughs> you know, that's, well, that's awesome. That I, that's a nose great massage, of yours, you know? I'm so, sure you do snore a little bit. I got this deviated septum thing, and I broke my nose when I was a kid playing basketball, and I never had it fixed. So, oh, that, well, that, that explains out, so, it. Yeah. Then, well, you were a little bit off whenever we first logged on i knew it yep yep you picked up on it you know it's kind of scary kind of like uh, my, <laughs> well my work your wife work wife you know? I mean, <laughs> that's well, right we have a wonderful guest tonight mr ron costado welcome ron thank you very much jeremy sharon great to see you uh via zoom i know this is going to be going out to the audience audio only, but it's nice to see you, especially during this pandemic where we haven't been able to see each other face to face. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah. And you know, Sharon, Ron was the chair of the ANA Foundation Board. So I got to see him a whole lot over the last year through Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, unfortunately, he just rolled off and uh, <laughs> oh, probably won't, won't be seeing him quite as much. And we've, we've got a big hole to fill, but he did a wonderful job. And I'm looking forward to hearing his topic tonight. So 
smart guy. We're going to be talking about probably several different things, Sharon. You want to kind of introduce the topic? Oh, absolutely. We're going to be talking about APRN regulation, legislative kind of stuff. You know, that's my jam. We're going to talk about the consensus model, the compact and independent practice for CRNA. So we're going to hit the grass tops of a lot of different topics. So Ron, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and why you are an expert on these topics? Well, thank you again for having me. A little bit about my background. I've been a CRNA now for going on 19 years. Upon graduation, I've been with actually my same group in Northern Delaware, although I do travel throughout the state. So that the same practice for going on 19 years. Along the way, let's see, about maybe four or five years into practice, I was fortunately had excellent mentors at the state and national level, but it was certainly started locally where I had um, mentors ask me to get on the Delaware Association of Nurse and Board of Directors. And so by 2006, only four years out of being a CRNA, I was elected president for the first time of DANA. And then it's you know around the same time, actually a few years prior where I was going to my first AANA national meetings. And, you know, I caught the bug, so to speak. It just, it was so incredible how just one meeting snowballed into, you know, getting involved. And then um, I was honored to be elected nationally to the ANA Board of Directors as Regional Director for Region 6 back in 2008. So I served on the Board of Directors of ANA for two years. And um, from then to now, so around that 10-year span between serving on the Board of Directors to now, I was able to also um, complete my PhD, even though I love nurse anesthesia or nurse anesthesiology. It's going to take a while for me to get used to that term. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy my clinical practice as as an APRN and CRNA. I wanted that opportunity to pursue my PhD to explore APRN healthcare legislation topics. So I completed my PhD in 2015. And like Jeremy mentioned, I just finished serving six years on the ANA Foundation Board of Trustees. So it's been excellent to get back on the kind of an ANA national level that way. And so that is a concise little explanation of my background there. Ron, you and Sharon make me tired. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you. Sharon gets a wild hair and goes back and gets her uh, her DMP at Yale. Yes, congratulations, uh, Sharon. Of all things. And and listening to you, I'm like, wow, you know, I suck. I I, I need to do something (laughs) else. I know a little bit about you, and that's not true. You're a gentleman, well-informed. Well, I'm looking forward to a lot of these topics, and obviously you're going to know a whole lot more about them than, than I am and Sharon as, as well. But can we kind of just start with a little bit about you know the State Board of, of Nursing and kind of the purpose and maybe the mission of the State Board of Nursing? Great. I'm glad to. So I also finished just serving about five and a half years on the Delaware Board of Nursing as well, um, with the last year being on, as president. I just actually finished my term. And it's a great question because it all starts before anyone can become a CRNA. It all starts really with obviously getting your background. Some people take the LPN, RN, APRN route. Some people obviously uh, maybe just start at the RN level and then work for a few years in ICU or another setting to become a CRNA. But it doesn't matter what type of nurse you are. You really have to have a firm foundation of your Nurse Practice Act and, you know, what is the Board of Nursing's main mission? And you know what? I think so many people unfortunately don't. And if, uh, you know, nurses don't understand that, then certainly, you know, the general public probably doesn't as well. 
But it may come to a surprise to some of our listeners that the primary mission of the Board of Nursing is really to protect the public. And that's any state Board of Nursing. That's the primary mission is to protect the public. Certainly, the Board of Nursing cares about nurses. It wants nurses to be able to renew their licenses, wants nurses to actually, you know, do their continuing education, contact hours so they can be competent licensees every so whenever the renewal period is. But really, the primary mission is to make sure that the Board of Nursing is licensing competent nurses so that they can competently provide healthcare services to the public. And if a nurse, for some reason, is not competent, does not do their CE credits, fails their audits that says that they did, or unfortunately does something as a violation of the State Nurse Practice Act, then, you know, then they're assessed discipline and that discipline can prevent them from providing health care to the public. And that, so consequently, that's how they're meeting their mission of protecting the public. So what are the different levels of discipline that can be assigned to nurses and how is it reported? Give us a synopsis about that. It's a really good question. Um, Everyone obviously listening to this podcast, I really pray is familiar with the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. So just like the AANA is our parent organization to like the North Carolina Association of Nurse Anesthetists or the Delaware Association of Nurse Anesthetists. The NCSBN, which stands for the National Council for State Boards of Nursing, they're the national parent organization to each individual state board of nursing. So because each individual state board of nursing has its own statutes, rules, and regulations, those levels of discipline can vary state by state. But in general, most states follow a similar pathway where certainly someone could have a written warning, but some of the more um, serious, to use that word, levels of discipline obviously most familiar in Delaware, can range from a letter of reprimand to probation. And with letters of reprimand and probation, certainly there are serious levels of discipline. But theoretically, a nurse could still work with a letter of reprimand or probation on their license. And then escalating that further, then there's suspension. And at least in Delaware, and I'm I don't want to go out on a limb and it's never safe to assume everything, but I imagine that in those states, once you reach a level of suspension, you absolutely can't work on a suspended license. And then at least in Delaware, um, the most severe level of discipline and licensee can be assessed in nursing is revocation. And one thing that's actually unique in Delaware is revocation of a nursing license is actually permanent. So it has to be really a serious, egregious violation for the Board of Nursing to actually recommend and apply revocation to a nursing license. I think Delaware is definitely unique in that regard. And in many other states, revocation is not permanent. But that's usually the escalation in terms of you know, serious some discipline, usually letter of reprimand, probation, suspension, and revocation. It's really important that nurses are aware of those levels of discipline and even something like... Um, accidentally, and I use the word accidentally, like in air quotes there, um, sometimes people, when they attest, and at least in Delaware, you, you need contact hours in order to renew your license. And sometimes people in the past just said, oh yeah, I did my 30 credits. And in Delaware, three of those 30 have to be in substance use disorder. And sometimes just people rely on their memories. They just think, oh yeah, I did that in the past biennium period, because in Delaware, it's every two years you need to renew. And, you know, they might be one of the unlucky people that months later get audited. And then actually when they're combing through the records, they realize that that education was done maybe months prior to their current biennium period. And so they attested falsely, unfortunately. And depending upon, um, you know, how quickly they may turn around and get those additional credits, 
you know, they're probably going to be assessed at least a letter of reprimand. And what people don't realize is, um, I can talk about this later, uh, if people have heard of the National Practitioner Data Bank, mm-hmm. those disciplines get reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, and that will follow that licensee for the rest of their nursing career. So every time they apply for a license in another state, or they go to a new employer and they say, have you ever been disciplined? Is your license ever disciplined? They better report yes if that happens because it goes directly to there. And like I said, that follows them and and can certainly impact their livelihood. So it doesn't ever fall off. Very important for people to be aware of those levels of discipline. So it never falls off then. Once something is reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, I've been told that that is permanent. That's not something that can be expunged. Right. And you know what else is interesting, Jeremy, that some people may not realize is that at the state board of nursing, you know, you officially get disciplined. That order is public record. Remember the missions mm-hmm. of board of nursing mm-hmm. is to protect the public. So if they go on to the um, division of professional regulation or whatever the title's called in that state, they can query any healthcare licensee. So it's not just nurses. It can be a physician, right. you know, physical therapist, optometrist, dentist, and they could query that name and find out that, you know, so-and-so was disciplined before, and that's all public record. So it's not, you know, held confidentially in that regard. Again, it's to protect the public. So the public, if they have that um, knowledge to do so, they could, you know, find that information out. And Sharon, you know what that reminds me of is you remember John Fetcher was on and he was talking about insurance and, you know, someone who worked a W-2 position at a hospital, had the hospital group policy, had, you know, something come up. And the hospital and the insurance company settled the claim, never told the CRNA they settled it. Mm -hmm. She goes to another place, and I'm assuming it popped up, and she didn't even know that it was settled. And, you know, it was, I can't remember, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think, was the claim. Mm-hmm. And that just made me think of that, Ron, as you were you were talking. And another reason, you know what, Jeremy, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's not just discipline at a state boards of nursing that can be reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. You are absolutely correct. Judgments can be reported there as well because they yeah. want to see if someone has like a malpractice that uh, judgment made against them. And you're exactly right. Depending upon, and John Fetcher is certainly the expert in insurance topics, but yeah. depending on the settlement or the type of insurance policy, sometimes that CRNA or licensee, they may not be in that conversation. Right. The insurance company might settle on behalf of that CRNA. And ideally, you would hope that they would communicate that to the practitioner. But clearly, as your example illustrated, that doesn't always happen. And it may not be until that CRNA applies to another job and that institution queries the National Practitioner Data Bank that they discover that and so I'm really glad you brought that up because it's not just, you know, state level discipline, but it could be insurance malpractice settlements, whatever that language is um, that could be reported to the NPDB as well. Wow. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm listening to this, Ron and Sharon, and you know, my, my oldest daughter is in nursing school right now and she says she's going to be a CRNA and, you know, just watching her go, she's in her first year of nursing school and she lives in this house. She's in a sorority. She's got four other roommates and, you know, we're talking last night and she goes, dad, I have been studying all day long. I have 14 chapters I have to read for tomorrow. She said, all my roommates were gone. They're out at the pool. You know, she's like, I'm in here. And at that, there's no way I'm going to get all this done. 
And she ended up getting it done. But man, you know, I was thinking back, you know, when I was in college and, and her roommates are business majors. She's got a couple of fashion majors and so forth. And I told her, I said, nursing is hard. I mean, it, it's a hard career path. I mean, not to mention nursing. And then you add nurse anesthesia education on top of that. This is, you know, it's, this is hard stuff. And I mean, you know, I, Sharon, I always tell you and you always say, CRNAs are some of the smartest people that I know. I mean, literally, the smartest people that I know. And Ron, you're you're one of them. Sharon's one of them. I mean, you guys just amaze me with the the knowledge that you have and the way you continue to build upon the knowledge and and so forth. So, speaking um, of knowledge, I've got a question, Ron. I've her. always heard this. I don't know if it's the case. And I wouldn't know personally, but I've always heard you can lose your nursing license if you get a DWI. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> you know what, Sharon? You raise a really good question. Again, it depends upon the state because some states, again, I'm not an expert on, on that, you know, all the laws, of course, I'm not an attorney, but in some states, DUI, it might be first or second offense, it's just misdemeanor, and then third might be felony. In some states, it might be, you know, the first time out of the gate, it's considered a more serious offense. So I apologize. I can't be more specific. I don't. um, How about Delaware? In Delaware, I believe what Delaware has is they have um, language that has to be substantially related to the practice of nursing. So I believe if a nurse and like drove through the hospital parking lot drunk, (laughs) now that might be a problem. Clearly, yes. So, yeah, but please don't quote me on this, but I believe in Delaware first time if some if a nurse licensee was convicted of DUI or um, pled guilty to TUI, I believe it's considered a misdemeanor. And I don't believe that that would impact their ability to renew their license because it's not that level that would require that. Because I think it would be like to cross the line from misdemeanor to felony, it might be the second or third time. So again, I'm not exactly sure about that, but I know that definitely is a great question because that can vary state to state. Because as you know, with drug laws, for example, they can vary widely. Some states, you know, might be legal to use marijuana in other states, right? It's still considered probably a, um, a misdemeanor or possibly even a felony, depending on the amount. So as you can appreciate, that can vary widely state to state. And that's why it's very important to disclose information. So if a nurse is unclear, definitely my best advice is to contact the executive director or whatever the, whoever the person is in charge of the board of nursing. It's better to volunteer the information to be clear. So when you are renewing that you aren't falsely attesting, because sometimes I would imagine most states, at least in Delaware, they do ask. And certainly um, there's criminal background checks now. But some states may also still have the yes, no. Have you been convicted of Mm -hmm. um, offense since your last renewal period? So it's really important to be honest. So I would err on that side. So that's why it's always best for people to renew early. So if you do hit a stumble block or something that's really a head scratcher, that before you officially renew your license, you pause, you get in contact with your board of nursing and say, hey, this is what happened to me. How should I answer? Um, So I'll answer truthfully. So that's a good question to Well, you bring up another good point. So wonder what's going to happen in states where marijuana is legal. You know, I've heard people talk about it. I don't know what the answer is going to be for for healthcare providers. But if it's legal, is it like a glass of wine? And on the weekends, you can 
smoke marijuana? I don't know. <laughs> Karen, that's funny you say that's that. That's another good question. Because I, I, I think part of it might have to, uh, obviously, someone being acutely high, like just like obviously most people can maybe enjoy, let's say, a glass of wine at night. Well, you're not, you're assuming that you're not on duty when you're having that glass of wine. You have one glass of wine at dinner, you're not on the clock. You know, you go to bed that night, you wake up the next morning refreshed, you, you know, you go to work. So I imagine that probably substances like marijuana be, might be the same thing, but a very slippery slope because mm -hmm. how do you know if you're impaired? You know, sometimes your your judgment's off, right? So um, it, it's a really good question. And with these new laws, it's going to open new doors and new questions. And, you know, there's that's a really interesting topic. Oh, once, you, once you get to be an expert on that one, Ron, we'll have to have you. <laughs> that's right. We'll have to have you. But, you know, kind of along the glass of wine deal, you know, I've done office-based anesthesia for a lot of years and had a plastic surgeon call one night, had a bleed and wanted on a face and wanted to do the case in his office, which is crazy. You don't know what kind of airway. And I just said, uh, sorry, you need to go to the hospital. I just drank a glass of wine, which I had not, but I just thought, of it. I mean, you know, that was a perfect way. To, we didn't take call for him. And he just called and said, hey, listen, I got this bleed. And I'm like, God almighty, that's crazy. You know, they're going to, they're going to have to go to the hospital. I've been drinking <laughs> and I yeah. was sober as a judge when I told him that. <laughs> well, hopefully he's not Your listening. answer would be absolutely correct uh, if you had been. So obviously uh, you exercise wonderful judgment, of course. <laughs> <laughs> while I was, while I was sober anyway. <laughs> uh, so, so Ron, what is the APRN consensus model and, and kind of walk us through how it was developed? Sure. You know, hopefully, you know, the listener's eyes aren't glazing over right now, because I know in the past when I've talked about the APR and consensus model, usually anything about regulation, and maybe Sharon can attest to this, sometimes when you're talking to fellow nurses about legislation, you know, they want to just like zone out. But it really is an important topic, and I'll attempt to, you know, define it very concisely here and clearly. But the APR consensus model is a very large document that was born, so to speak, officially, I believe it was July of 2008. And this was after 15 years of literally dozens and dozens and dozens of various nursing organization and association stakeholder groups providing input. And the, um, the APR consensus model, the goal of this model is it's a regulatory document that attempts to streamline the four types of advanced practice registered nurse roles. So everyone listening to this podcast, of course, is familiar with certified registered nurse anesthetists, but just in case some, sometimes there are other APRNs that don't know the other APRN groups. The other three roles are, of course, certified nurse practitioners, clinical nurse midwives, and clinical nurse specialists. So those are your four APRN roles. And this model attempts to streamline those four roles along with the acronym LACE, which stands for Licensure, Accreditation, Certification, and Education. So to have a regulatory model where advanced practice registered nurses can practice the full extent of their education, licensure, and training, ideally in every state that adopts this model. So there are seven basic elements, again, to this model. The different roles I explained Actually, the title, which is clear in, when, in the title, it says APR and consensus model. But one of the elements of fully adopting this model is being called an APRN. And believe it or not, there are some states that don't refer to APRNs as APRNs. Um, 
I believe uh, North Carolina. <laughs> I really, I was going to say, I believe Tennessee and New Jersey still use APN. And some oh. states actually use advanced registered nurse practitioner, ARNP. Most states, to my knowledge, use APRN. It's been growing if they hadn't. I believe back in 2015, when Delaware first had its major legislative success and its first step in moving with the consensus models, when they officially went from APN then to APRN. But just one of those elements, as simple as the title, there's a lot of inconsistency still, as Sharon pointed out. So, um, you know, that might seem a minor point, but um, some of the other more important points of the consensus model are, you know, of course, the roles I described, the making sure that licensure, accreditation, certification, and education are all up to snuff. So making sure that the schools that are in each state's meet the requirements for those APRNs to sit for their licensing and certification examinations. And then the last two important elements of the consensus model include independent practice for APRNs and independent prescribing. So the, you heard me mention the NCSBN before. They were kind of the parent organization that spearheaded all the other stakeholder groups to develop the consensus model. And what they do is um, once this was released in 2008, they kept track each year as states tried to independently adopt the model. So it's up to each state to implement the model. You know, the NCSBN can promote this, but they can't force, you know, each individual state to adopt it. And some of those elements like title may not seem like a big deal, but as Sharon can certainly agree with when it gets to the independent practice and independent prescribing, that can be major uphill battle in some states, even in the least, you know, contentious states that could still be an uphill battle to open that nurse practice act and change it significantly. So those are the basic elements of the consensus model. And even though it was released in 2008, it had a goal in 2015 to hopefully have all states implement this model. And unfortunately, in 2015, they still were um, very, fell short of every single state adopting the model. And I believe as we you know, record this in the summer of 2021, we had maybe 18 states, if I'm correct, that fully implemented the consensus model. So not even half yet. Shocker. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's going to be very contentious. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim. And most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call them at 504-394-6557. So let's talk about CRNA's ability to practice independently. And let's talk about strategies that CRNAs can use to help implement some of these changes. Now we're talking my jam. (laughs) There you go. That's also an excellent question. You know, um, if you don't mind my telling my personal story a bit, again, I'll try to be concise. In Delaware, when we had um, our first major legislative success in getting the consensus model passed in 2015, that process started four years prior in 2011 when we had various APRNs from all four roles in our state 
Um, certainly our executive director of the Board of American Nursing was one of our stakeholders. And you heard me talk about the components like um, education certification. You know, we had nurse educators in the state form this committee with our goal to kind of push this consensus model through eventually. And um, so even though all those, that framework was vitally important, and I think that is a framework that any state can kind of gather those workers in each state to kind of join that. One thing that we were really blessed with in Delaware that I, I um, unfortunately, we can't snap our fingers and have nurses as legislators, but we were really blessed and fortunate and lucky to have nurses who were already elected legislators. So um, one of my close friends who is now our current, Dr. Bethany Holong, who you know very well, Sharon, mm -hmm. correct? Right? Who is our Lieutenant Governor currently. I've known her when she was a state representative and also a state senator at the time where I was pursuing my dissertation. You know, it's so wonderful to actually have a nurse in that seat. So even though you can lobby and you can go to legislators' offices and you can explain those concepts and you say, you know, please call me if you have any questions. Once it gets to, you know, their chamber, so to speak, behind closed doors, you know, they may just be relying on their memories. They may, unfortunately, because they're not APRNs themselves, might butcher the topic a little bit and may not quite convey the points that you had. So to have a nurse or an APRN, even better, if we're talking about APRN topics as legislators, so they can be your voice and speak competently to those issues to the other stakeholders who are going to be voting on these policies is really amazing. And so we were lucky at the time we had two nurses who were legislators. One was a state senator and one was a state representative. And, um, you know, we had more legislative success this past year in 2021. And actually it was a representative, Representative Melissa Minor Brown, who sponsored our current um, legislation this year that really kind of came full circle and really had us enjoy um, APRN independent practice and full practice authority in Delaware. So if, if you're in a state where you can have nurses as legislators, that is awesome. I mean, that is bank, that is gold standard. But certainly, as we pointed out, you can't just snap your fingers and get that. So in terms of other strategies, definitely emailing, introducing yourself. I'm a constituent. I really care about you know the patients in our state, and I can be an expert and answer questions about this topic for you if you ever have a constituent that comes to you with a healthcare concern. Certainly, if we're talking about CRNAs, anesthesia-related, even better yet. Um, so besides those introductions and going to their fundraisers, they had contributing to the political action committees. In Delaware, back in 2015, that go around, we had a CRNA sponsor a barbecue and invited legislators all throughout the state. So it didn't have to be kind of that heavy talk. It, it means certainly if those topics came up, that's great. But just, to, you know, please come to this informal barbecue, meet your constituents, meet your fellow CRNAs who provide the care to your constituents in the state. And so people got that experience from that angle. So, um, sorry, I rattled off a couple different things there, but definitely getting involved. And, you know, I think of people after they work a really, really long clinical day, and then maybe they have young children at home, or maybe they're caring for elderly parents, you know, they come home after doing a very tough job, nurse anesthesia, nurse anesthesiology, very, very challenging profession. You know, you're exhausted when you get home. And I tell people, you know what, I realize that you may not have time to personally, you know, being serve on a board, but definitely, you know, pay your membership dues. And if someone says, hey, can you give, you know, $25 to the state political action committee, or can you go to, you know, the senator's fundraising, it's down your street. Hey, you know, you're, you're a constituent of theirs. I can go, but you live in his or her district or their district. You know, can you please attend? You know, um, 
maybe they're asking for a hundred dollar ticket and I'll kick in the other 75, something like that. It's those little interactions and telling your personal story that means so much because I could say APR and consensus model might go in one ear, not the other with that legislator. But if you can try to rather to not only explain that, but also say a personal story about how an APRN or a CRNA made an impact or, you know, who knows, um, in a small state like Delaware, you might say, oh, you know, hey, you know, I was part of your, you know, you certainly don't want to violate HIPAA, but they might say, oh, you know, what was a CRNA maybe involved in this, my uh, loved one C-section? You'd be like, yes, more than likely that's true. Those type of personal stories, I think, really resonate and they're likely to remember a personal story, especially if, it's, if they're a constituent. Yes, Sharon. You know, I've heard you say on many occasions the exact same thing that Ron just alluded to. You know, go talk to them, especially if you're blonde and you got this real southern twang because they're gonna remember <laughs> you. Oh my goodness! So let's talk about the APRN compact. Now that's a whole other subject. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Great. Thank you for bringing that up because you're absolutely right. I'm firing all these different terms. People may get confused if they're hearing it for the first time. You're absolutely right that the APRN compact is something that's completely different from the APRN consensus model. And then the notion of an APRN compact, you know, Probably most listeners out there are familiar with the nurse licensure compact. I would, I would wager to guess mm-hmm. um, the concept of a nurse licensure compact, I believe has been around since 1999. So a little over 20 years. And, and I, we call it, I can never say the word right. Reciprocity. That's right. Reciprocity. So that you can get your license in one state and you don't have to go through all of that stuff for another. And I don't know how many are in that. Yep. Great question. So yes, so what you're talking about is a nurse that who resides at their home state is a nurse licensure compact state. So at this point, I'm just talking about RNLPN compact, and then I'll go into APRN compact. So if you live in a nurse licensure compact state, RN um, compact state, I believe as we sit here today, there are now 38 states that have enacted in the, over the past 21 years, the nurse licensure compact. So if you're fortunate enough that your home state is a nurse licensure compact state, you are issued a multi-state license. And so um, again, as an RN, you have that multi-state license. You can go to those other 37 states and work under your home state license because you enjoy that multi-state privilege. Now, talking about privilege, it's very important. There are some people, there there are criteria to be issued that multi-state license. So if someone has active discipline on their license, it's what we call an encumbered license. So one must have an unencumbered license in their state to be eligible for a multi-state license. And I believe that is consistent. That's something that all states that are part of the nurse licensure compact, I think have to abide by the same rules. So um, as long as that nurse in that compact state doesn't have um, discipline on their license, therefore they have an unencumbered license, they can go and practice in all those other you know, nurse licensure states. So that is the nurse licensure compact in a nutshell. And so people might say, okay, well, I live in a nurse licensure compact state. That's great. But every time I go to work as a CRNA in another state, I might have to get a new license there. When, when can we have an APRN compact? And so the concept of an APRN compact has actually been around for several years from my understanding. The topic is definitely not new. However, it always kind of stalled. Every time there was some progress made, 
other stakeholders may have disagreed in the what would be the core requirements of the APRM compact. So it kind of on several, at least twice in the past, has gone back to the drawing board. And um, you know, back in 2015, the last time before 2020, where there was a bite at that apple, I believe it stalled with only four states joining the compact. And so um, after the four states joined the compact, it was like crickets for maybe the next five or six years. And people said, hey, we need to kind of revisit this topic, redo this concept of a, a nurse licensure compact. So um, back in August of 2020, at the NCSBN's annual meeting, the various nurse delegates from all states voted, and they voted on a new approved, new and improved version of the APRM compact. And so once that was voted upon in August of last year, it was then up to the states to do that groundwork again to see if they could get that um, language passed in their state. And actually, I believe North Dakota was the first state in February of 2021 that had passed APRM compact, and Delaware actually was the second state, and that just passed last month. So we have two states that have now implemented or enacted rather, um, not implemented, but enacted the APRM compact. And the way that this language was written and agreed upon back in August at the NCSBN annual delegates meeting was once seven states enact the APRM compact, it will become active. So we have two states now that have done it. So we can get five other states to enact it. We will officially have an active APR and compact and people will be able to start being able to go to those other compact states. You know, um, I think geographically of a state that's so large like Texas, where I believe, I think Texas is technically our second largest state, but in terms of the continental United States is, I think it's the largest state. You know, I guess if you live dead center, which, you know, don't judge me on my uh, geography, but I think Austin's dead center. It might theoretically, I don't know, take you 12 hours to be out of another state. So conceivably a nurse practicing in central Texas may nurse licensure compact not be a huge deal for them. But where I reside in Delaware, you know, I'm in two minutes to Pennsylvania. I'm in 15 minutes to Maryland. I'm in 20 minutes to New Jersey. So it really is impactful for those RNs and LPNs if they're able, and look at the pandemic that just happened. If it wasn't for governors declaring emergencies and, and removing those barriers, I mean, how quickly not only nurses can mobilize with the nurse licensure compact, but more importantly, access to care for our patients. It's a really big deal, I think, nationwide, but certainly in an area in which I reside. You know, you could be in three other states in, well, you know, in less than 30 minutes. So it really is meaningful to those nurses to have that portability without having to go to each state and, you know, pay for those licensing fees, et cetera. So hopefully this APR and compact will ramp up. As I mentioned with the nurse licensure compact, it's now 21 years in the making and we're now at the 38 states. So it's taken a while for it to ramp up, you know, two decades and we're still not at 50. I imagine it might be slow like that for the APR and compact as well if history repeats itself. But hey, if we can get seven states to enact the APR and compact to make it active, that would be great progress for not only APRNs, in my opinion, but the patients who deserve high quality APR and care. Ron, well, what? the VA system has had it forever, right? I mean, you can go anywhere within the VA system. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that, yeah, that, and that's a different animal, so to speak. But Yes, in terms of, you know, all patients and those licensees, if we're able to have that mobility and increase patient access to care, as far as I'm concerned, it's a huge win-win. So I'm glad that we're making that progress. And, you know, any it's never as quick as we want it to be, right? <laughs> right. Sometimes it might take several legislative sessions, but 
I'm just happy to see that there's been a lot of progress, despite the fact that we're dealing and we're still dealing with this horrible global pandemic, that there's still excellent work that nurses and legislators and other policymakers and, and decision makers have done. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So did the pandemic, do you think it helped with the argument for the compact? Well, um, yes, I, I hate to say, obviously the pandemic was horrible, but if we're trying to find a silver lining, something good that happened with the pandemic, I really think it's highlighted with a lot of our legislators or opponents in the past say, look, you know, we really need people who have the education and training. We should not let state lines be barriers or Borders be barriers. Your, your skill set doesn't change because you go from one state to the other. And if we're able to get these people to provide care in a, an emergency situation without going through the hoops of, oh, well, you're not licensed here. Absolutely. I really think that probably helped it. And hopefully some of these temporary restrictions or set, removal of barriers that were temporary, hopefully they'll become permanent. I guess time will tell. Mm-hmm. So, Ron, what is the process now? You're a CRNA and you're in Delaware and you want to go to New Jersey or, like you said, Maryland, or what is the process now that you have to go through? So, if I'm, you know, speaking for myself, if I'm, my home state is Delaware, so I have my RN license. I maintain a Delaware RN license, and fortunately, Delaware is a uh, nurse licensure compact state. And fortunately, thank God, my license is unencumbered. <laughs> so I have mm-hmm. that state privilege. And I also maintain a CRNA license as well. So um, being one of the states that have fully implemented consensus model, part of the consensus model is that state maintaining an RN license and an APRN license. So I have those two licenses. And if I were to go to New Jersey right now, New Jersey actually just very recently became an RN LPN nurse licensure compact state. So say this was two years ago, I would have had to apply for my RN license in New Jersey and then applied for um, an APRN license as well for those practice privileges. Now that New Jersey has recently become a nurse licensure compact state, at least for nurses that are wanting to practice in New Jersey, I um, theoretically should not have to apply for an RN license in New Jersey, but I would have to go the APRN route because there's not an APRN compact there. But my bordering state of Maryland on the other side, they are also a nurse licensure compact state, but the same thing applies. I wouldn't have to apply for my RN license in Delaware, but I would have to apply for an APRN license. And so if at least the surrounding states in which I reside adopt the APRN compact and we get seven states to do it, that will be one less hurdle. You'll be able to go to that state and work under your home state licenses, assuming that they're you know, they're unencumbered, like you have a multi-state privilege. And I'm assuming the reason it has taken so long is political reasons. Number one, is there adversaries against this as well? Can we talk about that for a moment? Sure. Obviously, most CRNAs at some point, I mean, many CRNAs work independently and they might be the only anesthesia providers in their facility I imagine that probably most listeners, um, whether it was school or currently, work with physician anesthesiologists as well. I know I do, and I work with a great group and feel like I have a wonderful relationship with most of my colleagues, whether they're CRNAs or physician anesthesiologists. And certainly, physician doesn't equate to 
necessarily being against a parent consensus model or a parent compact, right. but it stands to reason that definitely there are certain groups of physicians that would probably stand in opposition to moving any of these. Um, well, I think you were last speaking about the um, APRN compact, but any pro APRN movements, I think the number one type of opponent is a physician of some type, typically for various reasons. But you know what? Part of my PhD research that I've I conducted, you know, back in from like 2013 to 2015, oddly enough, sometimes there are nurses who are opposed to this. And the reason why there might be some APRNs who are opposed to these types of um, steps is they feel comfortable, perhaps. Um, I did a lot of interviews of various stakeholders, including APRNs. And sometimes I heard back from APRNs that said, look, I'm comfortable with my practice as it stands right now. I don't perceive that my practice is really being micromanaged or I have barriers. And rather than risking opening up the Nurse Practice Act, I'd rather just keep things the way they are. Huh. So believe it or not, and that was surprising to me, actually. You know, sometimes people just assume it must be a physician who is opposed to this or may be opposed to this. But sometimes it, it's, I think to a lesser degree, sometimes it's other nurses or APRNs that may be opposed to this. I know at least in our state in terms of um, the APRN compact and the recent legislative successes that we had, we had support from the healthcare. It used to be called the hospital association. Now the state healthcare association, we had the healthcare association. So, you know, hospitals backing us up as APRNs. We also had the AARP backing us up. So it wasn't just, you know, nurses or physicians. We actually had other stakeholders who were supportive of this, these efforts. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting to me as I kind of learn more and more about your industry and nursing and, you know, the different states that have different rules. And, you know, it, it sounds almost like the insurance industry where every every state has their own state insurance department. And it just seems so convoluted. Hopefully, uh, one day, you know, it'll all sort of blend together and be a little smoother process. So. Ron, I mean, obviously, you know this stuff, and I know we could talk about this stuff for hours, and you, you never, <laughs> never get tired of it. But at this point, you know, I, th I think let's kind of wrap this up. Is there anything that you want to conclude on as, as we kind of move forward here? Good question. Let me think of a good kind of a summary here. You know, I'm just so proud to not only be a CRNA, but being a member of the AANA, and I really owe... I think everything that from my you know, clinical work to my involvement, and this is why I was so happy to not only serve on the board of directors of the ANA, but also the board of trustees. I thought it was my duty to give back for so much that um, the ANA and the ANA Foundation has given to me. And I'm just grateful that I had this interest. I know that there are a lot of people, Sharon included, there are a lot of participating clinically, but they just don't have enough time to go to Capitol Hill. So I, I'm grateful that I have this, this drive and I want to do it. And so I just wanted to conclude by saying I'm just so grateful for my colleagues and the mentors that I've had, not only locally initially, but certainly people I've met nationally. And, you know, it, it can be sometimes, you know, two steps forward, five steps back. But for those states where you're fighting a battle and it's been years and years and years and years, you just got to keep up that motivation, even when the, it seems like you feel like giving up. That's the only way to, uh, you know, impact change, affect change. And certainly we talked about topics earlier about steps that you can do to try to um, move change along. I wish uh, more, more nurses to run for office. Yes, that was certainly key in Delaware. Absolutely. I mean, it, certainly it was the 
groundwork and, you know, that grassroots efforts from the individual APRNs themselves. But certainly I'm convinced that we would not have had a smooth, even though it was bumpy, it was still relatively so much more smoother having nurses in those seats to be our voices, like I said, behind those closed doors that I really think made our successes happen more quickly. And I hope that that is the pathway that other states can follow as well so they can enjoy legislative success on an APRN level in their states as well. Great. Well, Ron, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. And uh, as you said, this was your first podcast. And <laughs> man, you knocked it out of the park, buddy. I mean, That's uh, you what did I'm a great saying. job. You were too kind. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, you used the word expert. And uh, that just doesn't sit well with me because I feel like I'm learning something new every day. And especially when it comes to the legislation, you know, when you're monitoring, you know, 50 plus states, you know, boards of nursing and, and other legislative efforts. I'm so grateful to the ANA staff members at the state government. Oh, you're not oh my gosh, they are absolutely fantastic, wonderful. And so I'm so appreciative for our ANA staff members to help to make my monitoring easy as well. Um, so um, I hopefully gave you the most current, accurate information. And certainly, um, I, I don't know if you will offer this to your podcast, but I can provide my email address if, if anyone has any questions. But thank you so much again for the gracious invitation. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Absolutely. And we'll put your information in the show notes. So if anyone has okay. any questions, wants to get in touch with you. And Ron, thank you for all you do for the CRNA community. And uh, Right APRN back at you, both. Thank you so much. So, um, <laughs> you do a lot. and It is appreciated and did a great job tonight. So, so thank you very much. And as we kind of conclude, I don't know whether Sharon prepped you or not, but we do something called the lightning round. This was Sharon's little oh, baby and she <laughs> loves it. So uh, we're going to ask you a few questions and whatever pops in your head, just kind of rattle it off here and Sharon. All right. I'm first. If you could go back in history, what era would you go to? Oh my gosh. I love ancient history. So I would love to maybe go back to the time of, you know, the birth of Christ, but I also think it would be wonderful because I was, I was too young at the time to experience it, but I think it would be so awesome to be an adult in the late seventies going to like studio 54 Mm-hmm. But answer, I think that would be really. Oh, important. and you're such a great dancer. I've danced with you many times. And I've stood up uh, beside uh, Pierce when he was DJing at the AANA meetings, uh, watching you tear up some crowds <laughs> out there. <laughs> great dancer. So whenever we're back in person, I can't wait to dance. He's, Pierce. He's wonderful. Plays good music. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. Uh, all right, Ron. What do people often get wrong? about you you know what every once in a while i you know what? I, i'll say it i'm an oddball i was gonna say every once in a while depending upon the relationship i have with someone sometimes people think i'm really quiet and serious hmm. and you know sometimes you know once people get to know me i can you know I suppose like a lot of people i can be you know loud and, and goofy and sometimes that comes off as a shock to people who know me in like a professional capacity so yeah that's probably the that is true. Whenever I initially met you, uh-huh. you seemed very quiet and, <laughs> and thoughtful. You're exactly right, but it didn't take you long to come out with me and have a good time. So it's all right. Um, if you could have another profession, what would it be? Ah, oh, I've said this many times before. This is a little embarrassing. One of my guilty pleasures, don't judge me. It's funny, I'm using the word judge. I love, I get a kick out of Judge Judy. 
And I said, oh, if, really? I, if I wasn't a CRNA, I'd be a judge. Give me a gavel. I love <laughs> the board of nursing. And it was, you know, most of our meetings this past year were, were held virtually. I would, you know, bang a coffee mm-hmm. mugger. So that was my gavel, you know. So, yeah, I think I'd love to pursue that it. Oh, my well. God. My <laughs> daddy was in love with Judge Jim. <laughs> He was like the rain man. He had to be home that to watch hilarious. Judge Judy. That's funny. You might have had a little crush. He's entertaining. Sharon, you know? Yes. Oh, my God. Too funny. Uh, all right, Ron. Last one here. What's your favorite word? Oh, favorite word. Can I say it on the podcast? I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, okay. We've had we, people we, say we, all I kinds of things. So. family upbringing. My mother and father. Oh, you broke you up. Broke for just up a there. Minute. Say, say it again, Ron. Okay. Yeah, I said I was I was raised right, so I yeah I was just kidding about that favorite word, you know, tongue in cheek there, foul language. I would say that I think that word surreptitious is kind of cool. Stealthy, surreptitious. Oh, I like that word. That is a good word. You know, I used to work with a nurse a hundred years ago when I was an ICU nurse. And she always said if she had a little girl, she was going to name her atelectasis, (laughs) which means a collapsed lung, Jeremy. (laughs) I was like, what? Atelectasis. Okay. Only a nurse. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that must be nurse humor. But but that's a good word. Atelectasis. All right, let's close, Jeremy. All right, Thank Sharon. you so much for um, rescheduling this and your scheduling flexibility. I know uh, we kind of had a couple times rescheduling this. So thank you again, both of you, so much. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, Sharon, um, I think it's a wrap. I think so. So we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help us grow, Sharon, what are some ways our listeners can help us? Like us, leave us a review, but only if it's positive. There's enough negativity in this world. Absolutely. Tell all your friends to come and join us and and listen to us. Because why? (laughs) Because we're in the top 50 medical podcasts consistently in the U.S. And our goal is to be in the top 10 and continue to get the word out there and continue to be advocates for the CRNA community. And Sharon... We just won the PR award. I know. Whoop, whoop. And again, I know it's old hat for you. Like four times you've won it. But I'm pretty daggone excited about it. So That um, plaque's going to look good on the wall in the studio. That's right. That's right. So, Ron, thank you, buddy. Until next time. It's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan.
Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.